Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Stepping into the interrogation room with me today is veteran police officer Patrick O'Donnell. Patrick has more than two decades under his duty belt and has worked patrol, armed robbery details, vice squads, undercover, task force, and he's had the honor and a displeasure of serving as the incident commander for multiple officer-involved shooting investigations. Patrick has recently made an official foray into technical advisement, and just this past Friday has released a book, Cops and Writers, and he's joining us today to discuss that. Patrick, welcome so much to Writers on the Beat. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Gavin. Thanks for having me. No, it's uh, the pleasure's all on this side of the mic, man. First, for, for readers who are unfamiliar with, with you and haven't had the pleasure of, of running into this book yet, what do you want them to know about cops and writers? Well, first, I'd like to read a disclaimer. I do not officially represent any specific police or law enforcement agency and do not intend for any of this conversation to be legal advice. If you need a lawyer, get one. <laughs> I love that last part. Just short, simple, and no legalese. <laughs> yep, absolutely. If you got that sinking feeling in your gut, yeah, you should listen to it. Well, I uh, published three other books that had absolutely nothing to do with police work or law enforcement, nothing along those lines. And um, it was a variety of nonfiction and fiction. And like most indie authors, I was learning as I went along and I joined the 20 books to 50 K group on Facebook that Michael Anderley and Craig Martell run. And there seemed like there was um, some interest in my profession. So I, one day I put up a picture of me smoking a cigar, wearing a big furry <laughs> police hat. Yes. And I'm like, Hey, my name's Patrick O'Donnell. If you guys have any police questions, feel free to hit me up because there's a lot of misinformation out there. You know, I'd love to clear up anything. And holy cow, it just blew up. That post was one of the biggest reactors, I guess, for 20 books. And, you know, it, it raised some eyebrows and, you know, a couple of people that are like, man, you should really write a book with this subject matter. And it was always in the back of my head. And it makes sense. You know, you should, if you're going to write a book, write about something that you know yes. about. That's what's in your backyard. So one of the things that, you know, when I was in the academy, one of our instructors told us that, you know, if you just take a journal every day about the most outrageous or the worst things that you saw, you'd have a bestseller at the end of a career, right? And, you know, so I didn't do that. But in hindsight, I'm trying to go back and piecemeal this thing together. And it's kind of one thing, you know, for me to write a little bit of uh, a memoir of sorts of, of my career. But, you know, I think it's another to put on the, the mantle of, of technical advisor. And, you know, that requires an awful lot of knowledge and experience that you have in, in spades. How do you feel about taking on that title? Well, I didn't do it by myself. You know, I do have, I have the pleasure of working in a big city. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, the city is about 600,000 people, about 1,800 people in the department. I think it's one of the top 10 largest in this country. So obviously I've been exposed to a lot of different stuff. I think the only major thing I haven't handled is a plane crash. Hope I don't have to, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, fingers crossed. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, we do have a couple of airports near us too. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's, let's keep them in the sky guys. But yes. um, yeah, I haven't had to deal with that, but 
I've dealt with a multitude of shootings, um, any kind of major crime you can think of. I don't know how many homicides that I've been to or I've been the incident commander at. Yeah, it's I've had a good ed- street education, but you know I don't know everything, obviously. So I did have resources I could draw from. You know, one of my academy classmates is now retired, and I interviewed him, and he's a homicide detective. Oh, fantastic! So uh, you know, we talked for about an hour, or probably a little bit more than that. There's some stuff that I didn't know. I mean, I've been to you know hundreds and hundreds of homicides, and it was just interesting to get his perspective on things. One of the gals that is a forensic investigator in the medical examiner's office, I interviewed her. Now, I've seen her at literally hundreds of dead body calls because, you know, they respond to just about anything that's not, how can I say it, where you don't die in a hospital yes. if, you know, if you're, yeah. if you're dead on the street. You know, the only thing that she wouldn't respond to is, like, say, the 90-year-old cancer patient that died at home with a DNR bracelet. Yes. You know, that kind of thing. So it was very interesting to sit down and talk to her. And then I was lucky enough to talk to some other folks. You know, everyone from a lieutenant in uh, Manatee County Sheriff's Department in Florida, uh, Tim Downey. And then I was talking to a few other people on the West Coast in different size departments. Because, mm-hmm. like I said, you know, I'm used to, you know, big city stuff. And uh, I sat down and I talked to a retired sergeant from Chicago. I talked to um, sergeants and detectives from literally all over the country and even university police departments. So it was, it, was a, it was a real good thing. And what I found was we're all pretty kind of much chew the same dirt no matter yes. where you are. We're all brothers and sisters in blue. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the things, like, as much difference as there is in some of the daily the typical day-to-day life of different police departments, different agencies. Um, at the end of the day, most everyone, at least at the state and local level, is doing the same job. You know, Absolutely. In a different place, you know, maybe in a different uh, different uh, circuit court system, so the rules might be a little bit different, but for the most part, we're dealing with the same folks, having the same conversations with each other and with the public, and there's a lot of commonality despite a lot of the differences, especially in geography. Right. A good friend of mine, he was an officer where I work, and he got him and his uh, fiance, now wife, got sick of the cold weather, and they wound up uh, moving to Vegas. And he wow. became a, a copper out in Las Vegas. And I did a ride along with him probably about six, seven years ago. And I'm like, oh my God, it's the same stuff, but just a different location. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yes. the same. You know, back then it was crack was our big problem in our city. In Vegas, it was, you know, meth. And, it, you know, it's the same old BS, the same robberies, the same prostitution, the same, you know. Yep. It was just like, I'm like, okay, there's no difference here. Their department is a little bit different because they have a metro mm-hmm. where they don't have a police chief. It's the sheriff, but it's also a city department. There's only a couple of them in the country. Yes, yeah. They're just a handful of uh, municipalities where the county and the city are the same, yeah? Correct. Which is kind of cool because... When you have an arrest, you go straight to the county jail. Whereas in a city, you know, you go to the city um, jail, or if it's a big um, city, you go to it like a district station where we have temporary holding cells. Then they then they go to the county jail. You know, da da da. So the way they do things is a little bit different. And then what we consider a Terry stop, a stop and frisk kind of situation yes. from Terry versus Ohio, they have a little bit different standards 
where they need probable cause to stop somebody on the street. Wow. And I'm like, really? But probable uh, cause could be your foot's outside the crosswalk when you're crossing <laughs> the street. So cops will always, always find a way to get the bad guys. Always. Yeah, you know, I was having a, a, a conversation recently with a, a friend of mine who's who's never been a cop. And I am very much, um, the show is not about politics, but I, uh, my philosophy personally is generally very libertarian on a lot of things. And, you know, I... I really believe more in the the spirit of the law than necessarily the letter of the law mm-hmm. until the guy I know just left a crack house or, you know, meth house or, you know, the local fence. As soon as that guy puts his foot outside the crosswalk, now I believe in the letter of the law. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. You know, there's there one of the things that the Supreme Court has really done an exceptional job with is allowing uh, law enforcement to maintain its its discretion. And I think that that's something as much as you occasionally hear public outcry, the way that our legislators, regardless whether it's state, local, federal, the way that they write laws, um, if we had to enforce the letter of every law, absolutely. I mean, this would be a police state. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Officer discretion that allows us to have a, a, a functioning society. That is correct. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that I, I specifically wanted to, to bring up here um, is with this foray into, into specifically technical advisement for you, a lot of our, our audience are aspiring writers who are you know navigating their own way up the mountain. And as I routinely mention, I, I think more stories, regardless of genre, can really benefit from technical advisement about cops, crimes, and criminals because I would challenge anyone to find a story that doesn't have one of those things in it. Um, yeah, from romance to whatever, sci-fi, there's always some cop element somewhere. Yes, you know, and even if it's just, uh, you know, regarding the logistics of a divorce. Sure. Um, but one of the things that I really wanted to do with you, Patrick, and I hope you'll entertain me here, is that to give uh, some of the audience, I guess, some perspective on some of the things that we've personally learned or personally experienced through in different phases of our career, right? Because I think a lot of folks don't appreciate how different police careers are over time. And, you know, for example, um, at least speaking for myself and basically everyone I knew, you know, we got out of the academy and everything's bright and shiny and we're going to make all the difference in the world. We're going to save everyone from everything all the time. Do nothing but good, um, <laughs> you know. Win nothing but praise and accolades, and we're going to have this wonderful relationship with all of our citizens because we're here to protect and serve <laughs> you, and it's going to be great. Um, and it 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 didn't last very long. But um, did, what was your rookie experience coming out of the academy? Well, I was lucky enough to land in a district where there was a mixture of the richest people in the city along a lakeshore to the poorest people in the city that had the highest crime rate in the city. Wow. So I had a little bit of everything. There was even a college thrown in there just for good measure. But I started out working midnight to eight, and I worked midnight to eight for my first 13 years on the job. And it was a real interesting shift because obviously it was very busy in the summertime. It would be nothing to start 40, 50 assignments in the hole, which means 40 or 50 people call the police and they're still waiting. And obviously it's on a priority system. So the shootings and stabbings and, you know, 
fatal car accidents, all that kind of stuff, that's what you're going to. The loud music party or the barking dog is going to wait. So it was real busy. Um, It was an eye-opener. I was born in Chicago, and I lived there until I was in high school, and we moved to uh, rural Wisconsin, and (laughs) that was different just in itself, but... Oh, yeah. I had a taste of, you know, the big city in a small town, and all of a sudden I'm back in a big city, and I thought I, I was kind of street savvy, but I really wasn't. And, yeah, yes. I, when you're in the academy, you know, they break you down, then they build you up, and you're feeling pretty confident when you're walking out the door on graduation, then you get out on the street, then you realize, that I don't know anything. Man, this sucks. <laughs> you know, and then you think that, you know, not that they're going to kiss your butt, but you're going to think that, you know, hey, these senior officers are really going to help me and blah, blah. And it's like, you have a field training officer who will do that. I mean, they're they're going to help you and they want you to succeed. But the other senior officers, when the FTO is off, they don't want you. They don't want anything to do with you. They won't even yeah. talk to you. I mean, things are a little bit different now, but you were completely chastised. They, The people that you're working with and you're riding with, you're like, we, we don't want anything to do with a rookie. Yeah. So, <laughs> but... Like I said, I had a good education on the street, and a lot of it was just sink or swim. I mean, my first week on the job, I caught a a homicide suspect. The guy who got stabbed got stabbed in the armpit, which is a bad place to get stabbed. It is. And uh, it hit up one of the pulmonary arteries, and my FTO was like, okay, you go in the med unit and get a dying declaration from him. He's probably not going to make it. And I'm like, okay, sounds good. And I'm thinking to myself, what's a dying declaration? I have no idea. <laughs> I was just thinking, I should probably explain that to the listeners. I'll let you do it. <laughs> no, it's just <laughs> dying declaration is when, and I've taken a couple of them through the, throughout my career, is you explain to the person that is gravely injured that they're probably not going to make it. So it's kind of a, like, who shot you? Who stabbed you? You know, that kind of thing. So you want to get that declaration from them before they pass on to the pearly gates. Yeah, and that's amazing that that is a uh, a caveat in our legal system that that is uh, allowed and effectively hearsay. In, yes. In, yes, it is. In courts that you know normally, if the person is not there to say the words themselves, it doesn't get into court. But that dying declaration is absolute gold um, if it ends up being necessary. Right. Yeah, I've I've done two of them, and both the people passed. Mm-hmm. This guy was just grunting, so I didn't get anything out of him, and I wasn't even sure if I was doing it right. And the yeah. paramedics are looking at me like, "What's wrong with you? You're, you're what? What kind of weirdo are you? You know?" And I'm just like, "Who killed you? You're gonna die!" And it was like, uh, "We're trying to save this guy." And it was like, "Not very, not cool, not very cool, O'Donnell." But you know, so be it. So making friends and influencing people from a uh, shift seven. You know? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, the victim passed away. And I had to stick around for the medical examiner. And by then, homicide de- a homicide detective came out, you know, and he asked me a bunch of questions. And it was kind of cool because, the, you know, the medical examiner, she asked me a bunch of stuff. And I kind of got to see all the protocols and how all that works. But, you know, I didn't get home till like noon or one o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, yeah. And I was yeah. so jacked up on adrenaline. I'm just like, <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't sleep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I told my ex-wife, I'm just like, I have the coolest job in the world. Is this going to happen every day? You know, like, wow. What are what are some of the biggest surprises you've had in your career, I guess, versus, you know, maybe from the, the idea of what you thought your career as a cop was going to be and then the reality of police work and, and how your career, you know, is, is soon to soon to be coming to a close, I understand. As far as like surprising, 
as far as my career goes. You know, it just, I was surprised, and I know this is going to sound naive, but I thought everyone was fair and treated everybody equally and all that. And But then I quickly yeah. found out yep. about favoritism. And, I mean, this isn't sour graves by any means. I've had a great career. I've got zero complaints. Yeah. But there was a lot of things that I could have done, specialty units, blah, 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 that people got picked that weren't as qualified or didn't have the experience. Mm-hmm. But yeah. they knew this lieutenant. They bowled with that captain. You know, yeah. And you know what? It's the way of the world. Boo-hoo. You know, it's, it suck it up. It's That's life. And I made the best of it. And like I said, I've had a great career. I, I've been a sergeant for almost 17 years. So I promoted, and I got to do a lot of cool stuff when I got promoted. So, like I said, I've got zero sour grapes, and I've got nothing but, for the most part, nothing but good um, good juju when it comes to the job. So, when uh, I'll, I'll, in the interest of maybe some uh, some some decent writing prompts or some uh, some inspiration, maybe for the, a couple folks writing police uh, characters, I'll, I'll I'll dime myself out first. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I think gets really under uh, get underserved in in writing police procedurals and anything about cops is how how much or how, sorry how frequently especially in the first few years of our career we mess something up <laughs> um, and you know or you know we make a a not a mistake of the heart but a mistake of of knowledge right right and you know so um, coming out of out of the academy um, you know the when you leave the academy, you're you are absolutely hyper vigilant. My wife wouldn't sit in a restaurant with me, um, <laughs> unless we were with another couple because she couldn't have a conversation because I was watching everyone's waist and watching the door and you know constantly distracted with the uh, mass shooter who was going to come into my <laughs> restaurant. And I was going to be the the hero of this thing, right? Any rookie takebacks from your career? Oh, well, looking back, I mean, I've got plenty. Um, <laughs> probably one of the, one of the first times I was out on my by myself. I worked in a, mm-hmm. an extremely busy slash violent district, and most of the time we went out two-man, two people to a squad. And one night, and I was fairly new, I probably, I was done with probation, so I had about a year and a half on. And I, I'm i just excited that I'm driving around in a squad car, and you know I'm by myself, and it was scary and cool and exciting and yes. all that good stuff. And... I'm just patrolling around and it's two or three o'clock in the morning. And I see these three, what I thought were adults pushing this car. And it was like, it wasn't a classic Mustang, but it was like a muscle car. And I'm just like, I stopped and I'm like, Hey, cool car guys. I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is our, you know, blah, blah. I'm like, what's wrong? Yeah. You know, it's old and you know, we're having problems, you know, with the starter or something or just, we're trying to pop the clutch or I forget what excuse they gave. And I'm just like, Oh, cool. All right. Well, you know, you guys, do you need any help? They're like, no, no, we're cool. And I'm like, all right, cool. So five minutes later, squad 50. And I'm like, yeah, squad 50. Take the stolen car, take it in a burglary. And I'm like, oh, shit. So, oh, yeah, that was it. <laughs> they give the description of the three guys, the description of the car. And I'm like, ah. you know, they didn't run. Uh, they always run. Why did? So I felt about two inches tall, and I never told anybody. I'm just like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll check the area for that car. It's just you and me talking here. Yeah, <laughs> that was probably over 20 years ago, so I think I'm all right. Yeah, yeah. You talked, uh, mentioned it earlier, the the dichotomy between you know veteran cops, especially on patrol, and and rookies. 
I think from the outside, I, I think people probably look at that just strictly as like, you know, some bullshit hazing ritual from a bygone era. But in reality, you know, most rookies don't know what they don't know. And, you know, as, as uh, I think cops become more veteran, more seasoned, they're a lot more selective about who they're partnering with, who they're going on calls with, who they're going through that door with, because, you know, mistakes really do have consequences. Oh, absolutely. Um, and you don't appreciate that for yeah, a while. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about that. But, you know, like what you were saying previously, you know, it's, there's mistakes of the heart and mistakes of, you know, you don't have enough reps mm-hmm. or whatever. When I was a brand new cop, my captain was a Marine Corps, Vietnam vet, just a tough as nails guy. He always had a cup of coffee in his hand and he was usually smoking a cigarette where he shouldn't have been either, you know, this, you know, 25 years ago. But um, usually he was outside, but sometimes he'd sneak him on the inside too. But there was 10 of us that came out of my academy class who were waiting in the uh, conference room for him to come in. So he comes in, we all snap to attention. He's like, sit down. I'm like, yes, sir. So I'm going to swear now. He said, he looks at all of us and he says, all right, what's going to fuck your careers? And we're all looking at each other and it's like, um, not writing this report, uh, doing this wrong. He's like, wrong, wrong, wrong. He says, anything you mess up out there, we can fix for the most part. As long as your heart is in the right place. You're brand new. We expect you to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. Hopefully they're not really bad ones, but for the most part, we can fix it. But he said two things will torpedo your career. And he looks around the room and he says, booze and broads. And we all look at each other like, did he just say that? And then, y'all, there was some female cops in there and he says, whatever your persuasion is. And I'm like, oh my God. It's like, all right. He said, romance and alcohol and cops do not mix. He says... I've seen yep. so many good cops go down the shitter because of those things. Yep. And you know what? It's 25 years and it's the same freaking story. I give the same speech to every new cop. I'm like, you know what? You're going to have an FTO. We're going to be looking out after you. You're highly trained. You've got all the right equipment. You'll do okay. 99.9% of the cops, you'll be just fine. And we all start from this position. But I can't help you when you mess up off duty. I can't. Yep. And you know what? If you're writing stories about cops, you can throw that in there. You know, we're all human. And that is one of the biggest downfalls of cops. And you can look at the different reasons why, you know, the high stress, the horrible hours, et cetera, et cetera. But it's terrible. I know these are tropes, but they're true. The broken marriages, the tough relationships with kids, alcohol abuse, all kinds of stuff. I see one of the biggest mistakes that writers make is they make their characters very one-dimensional, very stoic. They're always mm-hmm. serious. I work with guys that could have been stand-up comics. Yes. Well, you know, I think, too, the, the thing that a lot of writers neglect is I think the trope is the alcoholic detective. But nobody, very few of them, right, ever dive into right. why. He, he wasn't an alcoholic in the academy. Wouldn't have made it through. You know, wouldn't have made it through the selection process. Exactly. So. What is so terrible about the job or the life of a detective or what his life has become that he is now an alcoholic? Um, Don Winslow had a summary of this uh, when he put out the force, but you know, cops are, are taken from society. We're not grown on an alien <laughs> planet and beamed in to you know, police civilization. We're the exact same folks who've, you know, just made a few different decisions over the course of our lives that allow us to be put in this position of trust, but we're subject to the same troubles and the, the same successes, the same Absolutely. availability. Now, one of the things 
two that uh, I wanted to make sure we hit on from a, a technical advisement perspective is, uh, and it's a pretty tropey thing, right, is the uh, police sergeant or, you know, the detective lieutenant, right, who's, you know, calls people into the office, yells at them, threatens to take their badge <laughs> and their gun if they don't get it right this time and, you know, all, all those things. But, you know, very few people write about police supervisors, and I think they really misunderstand the, the burden that that position is. Yeah, yeah. like I said, I've been a sergeant for 17 years, and there's different types of sergeants. Yeah, I've been a patrol sergeant, which means I'm on the street. I'm in charge of the police officers that are taking assignments. And there are certain assignments that I have that's mandatory that I respond to. So, like, say, any dead body, a fire robberies, sexual assaults, physical abuse to children. That's just a couple off the top of my head. And officers are trained to think independently because they have to. You know, they can't wait for me to kick down a door, you know, if I'm five minutes away. They, they have to make those decisions pretty quick. And there's a careful balance of, yes, I'm your supervisor and I'm going to tell you what to do, but how I supervise a day shift cop that's been on the job for 20 years compared to how I supervise a cop that's only has like three or four years or two years on the department. You know, for the younger cops, you're more of a father role, you're a teacher, you're a mentor. And, you know, sometimes you do have to crawl up their ass and give them a good boot. And sometimes, you know, yeah, I, I've been with cops that have been, you know, hurt, and I'm in the emergency room with them, holding their hand while they're getting stitched up. I've been to their uh, to family tragedies that have happened, and you know, I've gone with them when somebody's passed away. They look up to you that way, and you know, and then unfortunately, I'm also the guy that has to investigate them if they do something wrong. So you wear a lot of different hats as a sergeant, and it's very misunderstood. Rank is one thing that, as far as from a technical advisory position, that people get wrong on a regular basis. I remember I was watching some movie and it was some kind of crime scene, and everybody was a sergeant. Everybody had stripes, and I'm like, uh, "Who's doing the like <laughs> cop work?" You know, <laughs> yeah, just silly stuff like that. You know, they're really way off base. Like I said, you're gonna supervise differently depending on the situation, who your cops are. Like a typical day for me is I uh, get roll call ready and my officers will come in and they'll check in with me. You know, it's like Officer Smith reporting for, they'll go up to the roll call window, throw me a salute. Now the, the guys who have time on, whatever, maybe they'll salute, maybe they won't. Hey, good morning, Sarge. How are you? The new guys is like, good morning, sir. Officer Smith reporting for duty, sir. Yeah, <laughs> that kind of thing. So I give them their squad assignment. Make sure they have the right equipment, then I'll read roll call. And that's any kind of news bulletins, people dying, people getting married, people having babies that are on the department. And any kind of new rules, regulations, uh, any kind of changes in the law, city ordinances, that kind of stuff. And it's also an open forum, you know, it's like, hey, what's on your minds? You got any beefs? You got any gripes? You know, spit it out now. And day shift cops aren't shy about that. They're more than happy to let you know what's wrong. <laughs> yes. And yeah, it's so yeah. it's a way of waking them up a little bit and sending them off into the um, into the wilderness of the streets as the day progresses. Like today, I didn't have many calls till the end of the day, and unfortunately, we had a um, an eleven year old pass away. Oh. Yeah. So that's how I ended my day today. But sergeant, it was me and another sergeant that was there. And, you know, we were coordinating everything and the detective bureau is going to come out and we, it's a crime scene, even though the, um, he died of natural causes, we think, yeah. but until the medical examiner and 
investigator gets there and you know the scene is processed you, you have to treat it like a homicide so you know and you have hysterical parents and relatives and yeah you know, those are tough scenes but the sergeant is the one who's in charge of them. Hopefully, you know, maybe to, to counter your, your day, I was going to save this for a little further down the list, but what do you think the, the greatest thing is you've accomplished oh, in your God. career so far? That's a toughie. Nothing individually, if anything. What makes me the happiest and makes me the proudest is to see cops, when they were brand new, work for me and now outrank me. They've gone through yes. and, you know, or they've gone to some specialty unit or or maybe they've, you know, gone on to get a federal job, you know, working for, you know, the ATF or whatever, if that's their bag, you know. But I always wanted to see my guys progress and be happy and, of course, be safe. Yeah, that's one of the things that I, I think is also really underappreciated by the public is the, the legacy and the impact that a single officer, uh, a single good cop can have. One of my mentors um, was, uh, was killed in a vehicle accident several years ago, and he was primarily responsible because of our, our work together in narcotics and also in, in SWAT. He was pretty primarily responsible for a lot of my proficiency and in, in, in my training. And I worked really hard, worked really hard to to train up my guys to that, that same level of proficiency, to pay attention to all the little details that he taught me to, to, uh, to pass on. And because of him and his training, the cops that he brought up who are now and have been bringing up other cops, he effectively in some capacity, even, even if anonymously, he gets to live forever. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I was at a pig roast, you know, a little bit of a <laughs> pun there. Um, one of my, uh, he was a brand new sergeant when I was a brand new cop, and he was my favorite sergeant. He had the best sense of humor. He loved his guys. He would do anything for his guys, and he was just that guy. And when I got promoted to sergeant, you know, I got sent to a different part of the city, different district where I didn't know anybody, and that's on purpose so you're not supervising like your friends. So I walk in the door. I don't know anybody, but there's there's Sergeant Byer just sitting by the window and I'm like, Oh, thank God I know somebody. And he was so damn funny. He was, he was the best mentor, best teacher, best partner ever. And like you said, in, I went to this pig roast and it was in memorial of him because he passed away from cancer a year ago. Oh, I'm sorry. And his, his widow, um, put this pig roast together and she's a cop as well. So obviously, you know, we got the humor going and, uh, yeah, he, like you said, his legacy just keeps going on and on because you're at this pig roast and everybody's swapping stories and you're like, man, I never knew that. And it's like, he, did, wow, you know, it's just one person after another. It's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, that's why, you know, all these different cops, they're like sponges when they're new. They just absorb everything and the good, bad, and the indifferent. But, you know, he, he was just... His big thing was, I want to see you guys walk out the door with a smile on your face because you're going into Schittsville, USA for the next eight to 10 hours. You know, it's going to suck, but I'm going to leave you with a smile. He, he, like I said, he could have been a stand-up comedian. He was so damn funny. I mean, I'll leave you with one story about him. We had a newer cop. He was kind of cocky. He used to play football in college, and Sergeant Byer found out that he was in, he had a like a 30-second cameo it was either the program or um, Varsity Blues. Oh, wow. I forget okay. one of those yep. football movies. <laughs> and this is where the coach—it's halftime. 
and the coach dumps over the table of Gatorade. He's like, I don't give a shit about your muscles. And it's this cop back when he was in college with like a bunch of other football players with their shirts off, you know, just (laughs) kind of just posing. So this cop didn't, you know, everyone's looking at him. He's like, don't care about your muscles. And then we just got a smart board with a projector. Yeah. Somehow he got that clip and he played that clip over. He played that at every roll call for a month straight. (laughs) And this cop, I mean, like I said, he started out kind of cocky. He wasn't cocky by the end of the month. (laughs) It was so damn funny. Yeah. I mean, you do have those standout people that their legacies will last like forever without a doubt. Where can readers connect with, connect with your book, with your, uh, your, your Facebook group? Where can they find, find you and your technical advisement? Well, I do have a, um, a website that's www.copsandwriters.com. No um, spaces between the cops and writers. I do have a Facebook group. It's cops and writers. It's a closed group. All you have to do is just ask and I'll put you in there. Oh, you could also email me at Sarge at copsandwriters.com. I'm pretty active in the Facebook group. I'm on there pretty much every day, checking out what's going on. If you're hesitant about asking a question, somebody else has probably asked it in there or somewhere along those lines. I'm also going to be at 20 Books Vegas this year. Oh, fantastic. Uh, Then uh, that that first round will definitely be on me then. Oh, you're going to be there? Yeah. Outstanding. I met another writer from, uh, he lives in uh, the Netherlands right now. We met in, in Austria a couple years ago and yeah, uh, we're gonna drive up from uh, from Arizona together, so it'll be outstanding. It's be a good time, yeah. Oh yeah, I've been. I was at the first two, and this is the third one. And uh, I am gonna be a moderator for a law enforcement uh, thing that we're gonna have. I believe it's on Thursday at two in the afternoon, but that could change. I'm gonna be going down to Nink in uh, Florida. Okay. And that will be in September, and that's pretty much where you can find me. There are other forums for you to find information, you know, for writers, uh, for writing uh, anything about crime. Jennifer Servino runs the Legal Fiction Facebook group. That's really good if you're getting into the weeds of the legal aspects. There's a Trauma Fiction Facebook group. That's um, real good. There's medical professionals that belong there. And, you you know, okay, if somebody's shot here, how long would it take them to bleed out? You know, they ask those kind of questions, so it's real handy. Yeah, and then um, we're also planning a murder. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there's that. Um, the Writers Detective um, podcast yeah. is good. My buddy uh, B. Adam Richards. Yeah, good dude. Yeah. Oh, outstanding. He's and he's writing a book. It's the Writers Detective Handbook. That's on pre-order. I'm sure that's going to be fantastic. Yeah. So that's where you can find me right now. I'm Amazon exclusive. I just launched the book on Friday. It's in uh, paperback and Kindle version. And as a special gift to one of your listeners, you can pick them randomly however you want to. I'd be happy to mail them a a paperback autographed uh, copy of the book. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, we will will take care of that. Within the United States, though. Postage, once you start getting (laughs) out, is a little bit... It's way steep for this guy. Sorry, my friends from across the pond, but not right now. Well, I greatly appreciate your time and coming on, Patrick, and sharing your expertise with us. Uh, best of luck with this one. We're uh, looking forward to, to painting the internet wide with, uh, with promotions for this one and getting uh, getting your word into more more people's hands. I think it's desperately needed in the in the genres. I I appreciate the time. Thank you very much.
You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been veteran cop, technical advisor, and author, Patrick O'Donnell. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.